For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Before we get going, I want to take a moment to tell you about some exciting news for high school sports fans across the country. SB Live Sports has launched a free iPhone and Android app featuring the latest high school sports news, scores, videos, polls, photos, podcasts, player rankings, and much more. With the SB Live Sports app, it is now even easier to follow your favorite team. With real-time scores and news alerts, as well as video highlights, podcasts, photo galleries, rankings, game coverage, and much more, the app delivers all the content you want in one convenient place. The SB Live Sports app features exclusive content from on-the-ground reporters across the country, and it's the number one source for Washington high school sports fans. With coverage from reporters Todd Mellis and Andy Bueller, me, Dan Dickow, SB Live's recruiting expert. This SB Live sports app is available at no charge in the Apple App Store and Google Play Store. Download it today. The ISO with Dan Dickow and SB Live Sports, brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Here's Dickow from the deep corner for three. Uh oh. Uh-oh, it's on now. Downtown Dan connects. Every morning when I'm working out, I'm listening to your podcast. Keep up the great work. I mean, I've seen Dan Dickow hit some big shots in the NCAA tournament. <laughs> I got to salute you, man. Like, I've been watching you since I was in high school trying to mimic all your moves. Welcome to today's episode of the ISO with myself, your host, Dan Dickow and SB Live Sports on the Believe Podcast Network conversations throughout the world of sports, usually hoops, putting the orange ball in the round circle thing. My guest today used that to go from Texas all the way to the Big East and played for Villanova in Philly during one of the heydays of a great basketball conference. Chris Walker. Chris, thanks for joining. How's life on the East Coast? Because that's where you station yourself these days. What's up, brother? Good to hear from you, man. I, I miss you on CBS, man. I know you're a West Coast dude, but it was good having you in the studio. And yeah, I'm uh, in Brooklyn now. So the weather's nice. We're not getting that Washington weather right now. We're getting this great weather here. So I'm real happy right now. Nice. We're, we're starting to get that that shift and change into summertime weather ourselves. So oh, cool. it, it goes from indoor hoops to hopefully some outdoor hoops. You, <laughs> you, you mentioned it. You live in Brooklyn now. You know, when yes. I think of Brooklyn, when I think of New York, I think of outdoor basketball in the parks. Uh, you ever get that itch to go play in Rucker Park or any of those other uh, iconic basketball parks uh, in the New York area? Well, because I want to make sure that my Achilles tendon stays intact, I'm going to refrain from doing those things. If my basketball is on the elliptical machine. That's what I get mine at. So if you can get a video on the elliptical, if I can watch the Lakers play, 
uh, while I'm riding a bike. That's, that's about as good as a, on a Peloton or something like that. That's about as good as me getting basketball in right there. Well, how about the coaching you? I know, uh, you know, we spent some time working together uh, this year with CBS Sportsnet. Uh, we, we had a chance to talk a lot of hoops. We'll get into some of your playing career, some of your coaching career, which is where the bulk of your basketball uh, career has been. Do you ever get out there and coach up the young guys on, on the blacktop in New York? No, no, never. No, I don't, not opportunity. Sometimes I'll work kids out. Uh, a lot of people don't know I coach summer basketball uh, maybe like five years. I've had two stops uh, where I did not coach. And uh, I uh, worked for Adidas one year, had a team with the T-Mac All-Stars, uh, with Tracy McGrady, actually. It's called the T-Mac All-Stars. And I uh, had another program I worked with Under Armour, uh, and I called it Texas Boys, um, uh, Texas Boys Club. I mean, whatever, Texas Boys was, was called Texas Boys. But, um, you know, it's just one of those things where I always love staying connected. And uh, summer basketball, I know a lot of people much malign AAU coaches, but I loved it. So it's, uh, it's, it's great. You get a chance to really, uh, you know, Dan, we talk about summer basketball and the way these kids move around. But, you know, if you coach them and you run a team, and I'm sure you've been involved as well, there are some highs. I mean, there are some lows, but there's definitely uh, some highs that come with influencing young kids. So, yeah, not not in particular in New York, but I do get in some gyms and work some kids out. But. Uh, we'll see. And I actually have thought about, you know, maybe coaching some summer basketball uh, this summer. So we'll see if I get that itch. So having been a part of the evaluation scene as a college coach um, and watching it work from that angle and then being on the inner workings of some some high level AAU programs, how would you I don't want to say it's broken, but how would you run AAU basketball in the evaluation periods uh, to be as efficient and impactful as possible. See, that's a tough one. <clears throat> Again, you know, I was knee deep in recruiting. I probably put about in five years, probably at least 50 kids in college and at, at, at various levels. The thing that's tough, uh, and, and I, it's also something that I'm not crazy about on the collegiate side is the letter of intent where you lock kids in contractually. Um, but in AAU or summer basketball or, or travel basketball, you can't lock kids in. Does that make sense? Like there's no contractual agreement. So it's like handshake agreements and kids can skip around and put guys can recruit your players and, and you get college coaches in the middle of it and high school coaches and some guys have ill intentions and some guys have great intentions. And you have parents with these uh, expectations that are through the roof that will never, ever, ever, ever come to fruition. So there's a whole lot of things baked in the cake that makes it very difficult from the NCA side. Uh, every rule they make, uh, I always struggle with it because it's only for the less than 1% <laughs> of the guys that will actually play college basketball. Uh, most of the kids, they don't make the rules for the actual, the, the layman kid that's playing that's going to go to a mid-level division one school. It's only for the guys that are going to be McDonald's All-Americans. So they try to make rules that are deterrent uh, for everyone, and they end up making it, uh, you know, just more strenuous. So if you ask me the one thing that would make it easier is um, I don't have that answer. I just know that, unfortunately, and Dan, I don't know how much your high school was involved. I don't know who you play for in the summertime, um, but it, the way the recruiting rules are, 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 are constructed now, and then COVID may change some things, 
Most of the rules empower the summer coach because most of the tournaments or the times that coaches have are the summer and the spring is when they don't have their season. So when they don't have their season, they can be out a lot more. When they have their season, particularly the head coach, they're not going out, so they don't see as many players. So a lot of kids don't get seen. And here's the other thing. When you have huge tournaments like they have in Vegas and or, or the EYBLs and stuff, Dan, you can see so many players at once. If during high school, you can only see the one game. So when you travel, it's cost effective, you know, where you can't get as much done. So it's better to structure everything around the summers. So if there's a way to kind of change the schedule, which sounds crazy what I'm saying right now, right? But because of the way the, the schedules work, it actually favors the summer coach. And then that's where a lot of the melee takes place, if you know what I mean. Not that high school coaches can't be involved in getting in the fray. It's just they don't have as many opportunities because everything's built around the summer. And so then, by and large, the parents give more energy. They give more influence to the summer coach. So that's where all the rules come from. That's a long-winded answer, but, you know. No, I love it. I, it does make a lot of sense. And I know the NCAA has tried and tweaked their schedule, <clears throat> excuse me, a little bit. Um, it's something that's never going to be perfect, but I think they need to keep working on it uh, to value both the summer AAU coach as well as the high school coach. I was lucky. I had a great high school coach uh, who was um, who, who understood the value of playing in the summer. And, and I was right. in an er era where in the state of Washington, there was only a handful of teams where now there's 25 different teams. Right. So if you were on one of those teams, uh, it, it was a big deal. And he right. was very influential uh, in, in helping me in that process make a good decision. Now, with you having coached in that uh, summer, as well as evaluated, is there one player that when you walked into a gym, whether you were coaching or whether you were evaluating, you just walked in as like, wow, that, that guy's a pro. I'm just going to enjoy this game and can't wait to watch him as an NBA All-Star? So there's two kids. I, 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 I always love telling this story. There are two kids that I saw as high school players. I say they are can't-miss pros. Now, one made it, and one's actually a, you know, a superstar. That one player, when I was at Vanderbilt, was Ron Mercer. I don't know if you remember Ron Mercer oh, yeah. at Purdy, Kentucky. It was unbelievable as a high school player. I mean, just phenomenal. And the other player, I was at Villanova, he idolized Corey Fisher, which is crazy. I don't know if you remember Corey Fisher that played with Scotty Reynolds. Idolized Corey Fisher, went to the same high school. I remember telling Jay Wright, said, Jay, I think I just saw the best high school player ever. He's not a big guy. You know, he's unbelievable. He's the most skilled guy. I always love those guys. I don't know if you're one of those guys, Dan. You know, you're right-handed that could dunk with their left hand. You know what I'm saying? The <laughs> righty that dunks with the left, that's a guard, uh, is usually a pretty talented and athletic guy. And that guy was Kyrie Irving. And so I just remember like this unassuming little kid. And the next thing you know, you're like, wow, unbelievable. I digress. I will tell another story. When I coached for my team, the TMAC All-Stars, there was a tournament called the Charlie Weber Tournament. They used to have it in DC at the University of Maryland. And we're playing against this team from North Carolina. And I'm like, okay, that guy right there is an NBA, former NBA player. And uh, his son's really good. I'm looking at this little kid. I'm saying, yo, man, we're going to kill these dudes, man. Please. What? Who, son? Hey, man, you got him. And the kid continues to light us up. 
And the dad that was coaching the team was named Del Curry. I'll let you do the rest after that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you put two and two together. And obviously, obviously he's uh, the guy who has transformed the game of basketball, just uh, won the NBA scoring title. Uh, that's awesome. So let's go back to your playing career. You grew up right. in Texas. You right. get to, to Philly and go to Villanova kind of towards the around the heyday of the Big East. How right. does a Texas guy get to Villanova? You know, it's funny. You know, our colleague Steve Lapis, uh, who was uh, who, rec- who was on the staff at the time, recruited me uh, from Texas, from Houston. And you know, the funny thing is, the, the, my last choices were like Georgetown, Villanova, and USC, right? And I even say Minnesota. I don't know if you remember, Clem Haskins was a head coach at Minnesota. Minnesota was really good back then. Uh, USC had George Raveling. Um, and I wanted to be in films. I wanted to be in Hollywood type. I wanted to go to L.A. because uh, you're from Houston and it's very conservative and you want to branch out. Georgetown had Hoya paranoia. And, and interesting enough, even though I went to Villanova, I cried the night that Villanova beat Georgetown in 85. You know, that's how much of a Georgetown fan I was of Patrick Ewing and, and, and the David Wingate and, and Reggie Williams. You remember Horace Broadnax, that, that group of uh, uh, Hoyas. Every kid back then wanted to play for Georgetown. And it just wasn't. I love Coach Thompson. He's great. It just, you know, Villanova did a great job of recruiting Steve Lapis. You know him. Like, he's the ultimate salesman. So he did a great job of recruiting me. But I'll tell you this. You know, back then, I grew up during the era of Five Slamma Jamma. You know, Clyde Drexler, Larry Meshaw, uh, 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 I forget the other kid, um, Michael Young, who had Jacob Young and his son play for uh, – um, Joseph Young, who played for Rutgers this past season, and every King Cadillac Anderson, and all those guys were from inner city Houston, the same area I grew up in, went to high school. So it was a big deal. And only because, and Guy V. Lewis was a, was all of our heroes. And only because Guy V. Lewis ended up, ended up retiring. And, uh, and then Tito Horford, I don't know if you remember the name Tito Horford. I do, yes. Houston got in trouble with the Tito Horford thing. So five slamma jamma, and one of the best players ever, that ever played at Houston, and people will tell you this, they'll talk about Elijah Juan, but Rob Williams went to my high school. He was one of the best players ever to ever play in the state of Texas. He went to Houston as well, and my coach was a Houston grad. Uh, I don't know. The funny thing is, I don't know if you know the guy named uh, Vic Schaefer, who was the um, head coach at Mississippi State on the women's side. Now he's a head coach at Texas. He was my freshman coach. Right. So a lot of history there. And then the next thing, you know, the Big East is on fire. It's people don't know when ESPN first started, ESPN started with the Big East. That was their signature thing because they couldn't get programming from the three big networks. So they did it with the NCA and the Big East was how people saw Dan. You remember this big Monday, you know, and so that was a huge deal and no one else like the Southwest conference. Like if I grew up now, there's no way I'd play in the big East. I would be at Texas or A&M or Texas tech because you have the big 12. Well, that didn't exist back then. And Southwest conference was a football conference. So the big East was the most appealing thing in the world being on ESPN, but because cable television just exploded and per, you're watching Pearl Washington and Derek Coleman, you know, and you're watching these guys, Patrick Ewing. And, and I played against Alonzo Martin and Dikembe Mutombo. That was the front line of Georgetown when I played. So it was so exciting, man, back then. And I'm telling you, Dan, when I tell you I was a fish out of water, I was a fish out of water. I didn't even know what the Philadelphia Big Five was with Temple and LaSalle and Penn and Villanova. Like, I had no idea. 
in St. Joe's what I was getting myself in the middle of. I was just like, oh, I'm going to college. And then I quickly learned that it's very, you know, with the Philadelphia media and it was a very different world. And I, and I, and I make this, uh, it's self-deprecating, but I tell this story. I had a, when I was second team all big East, my soft, my, my junior year, going to my junior year and uh, all first team, all big five, my first two years, but an injury riddled career to a degree with my knee, my last year, this is a, I always tell the story. So I used to, um, I used to be a singer in college and I sung the national anthem of a few of our games. Right. And uh, really, I, yes, true story. My last year, I have like 900 and maybe 90, 900 and like 80, eight, nine, maybe like 85 points going into my last couple of games. Right. And I ended up my career with 991 points, nine points short of a thousand, you know, injury, a real career, but ended up being a good career. And somebody laughed one time because they were, when I went back to Villanova to be a coach, I was at these, I was at this uh, alum's house and we're hanging out and I see this kid dribble around this thousand point ball. And I'm like, whose ball is that? And it has Chris Walker on it. I'm like, Oh my God. (laughs) Like until this day, I'm like, I'm going to write a book called 991. That means when you fall short of your goals. So till this day, it still sticks in my crawl. That was nine points short of a thousand. But you know, Dan, the funny thing is, with college basketball today, that's not even a milestone anymore. How about that? Yeah, yeah. it's really it really isn't right. Think about it. You think about uh, guys that play Washington. Oh, not think about Washington guys that play Gonzaga that come in like a Chet Holgram or or Jalen Suggs. They'll never be thousand point scores. It's not a milestone anymore. <laughs> that's uh, an amazing story. Nine hundred ninety one. I'm gonna have to remember that. So for next year when we're in studio, don't you bust my chops. And I gotta, I have to make a comment. I'm gonna call you Mr. Nine Ninety One. Wow, that is man. great. Hey, so you mentioned a great college career, but you were hampered by injuries, and people don't a lot of times don't understand. Uh, there are so many good players that don't have the opportunity maybe to play at the next level because of injuries. Some guys uh, are able to stay healthy. Some guys, you know, have little bumps along the, on the road. I would imagine you had goals, aspirations to, to play at the next level, but you went right into coaching when you were done playing. Was that an easy transition for you? Is that something that you wanted to play as long as you could? And then you knew you were going to get into coaching. You know, it's funny, man, when you're going through it, as I, as I, recollect and just go back and think about what was going on back then you know you know you think about man you know I want to play at the next level and interesting enough Dan my senior year was the first year they cut the draft down from nine I want to say nine rounds to two rounds so like even like myself I probably would have been drafted like when you hear those older guys say they were drafted in the seventh round or the fourth round (laughs) my first year my first year out was the first year was cut to two okay so Probably if, you know, if that didn't exist and you get drafted, maybe you try to play somewhere. I actually, after my sophomore year, I actually got a trial with the Houston Astros because I was a baseball player. Oh wow! And so I was thinking like, maybe I could, you know, play professional baseball because I was huge, a huge baseball fan and baseball player. And then what happened was as you start looking at, and I've always been a visionary, I said, you know what, I'm not going to play in the NBA. And so what I was a captain for three years at Villanova, and I remember Roland Massimino, people don't, a lot of people don't know this. He took over for Jerry Carcanian. He was a coach at the Jerry Tarkanian at UNLV. 
And so I'm like, hey, you know what? Maybe I could be a coach. And so my boss, and actually, Dan, I don't know if we played against you when you were at, no, you know, you're a little bit old. You're a little bit younger than me. But because I'm thinking about Fitzy and big fella, who's it, Jeff? What's the kid that played at? Jeff, uh, Jeff Brown. So when I looked, so when I graduated, John Olive became the head coach at LMU and Roland Massimino became the head coach at UNLV. And I told you before, I wanted to be in entertainment. So I actually didn't go right in. I, I went really, I went right away into coaching, but it was not to coach. It was a way to get me from Philadelphia to Los Angeles or Las Vegas. Cause Roly was like, well, if you want to be in show business, you should come to Vegas. Or, and then I looked at LA and then I had a dual decision. I said, you know what, if I make it in Hollywood, I should go to LA, but if I don't, I, I'm going to go with John Olive because I have a better chance of moving up quicker on the staff if I go with John Olive than going with Roland Massimino. So make a long story short, I go out to California and I'm trying to act in movies. I actually got a, a, a call back for Blue Chips. I don't know if you remember, remember Blue oh, yeah. Chips. I, I auditioned for that, uh, for the part of Tony, you know, a couple other things that... Um, that I did out there, but you, you, what people don't understand is as hard as it is to make it in the NBA is even harder to make it in Hollywood. Right? So the word starving artists focus on the word starving. <laughs> and, um, I, um, quickly learned that, you know what, and then another thing that happened was it actually got me more focused on coaching. Uh, I was like, a, they had back then what they call a restricted earnings coach. And you could only make so much money. And I was out, that was dirt poor. I mean, it was just like the toughest thing in the world. Thank God they had university housing, had no car. I mean, just doing film exchange, the old film exchange with the, with the VCR tapes, man. Like there's like the craziest job ever. And the one thing that I did though, which is crazy, see the NBA pro league used to be at LMU, right? And so I had, I was the lowest guy on the totem pole. So I had the keys to the gym. And you know LMU because you've been to LMU. Oh, yeah. They got that huge Gerson Pavilion. But if you move those uh, stands back then, it's three courts there, right? And so I used to have these runs like they have at, L at UCLA. I used to do that at LMU because before when, when the Lakers played at the Forum, right, and the Clippers were playing at the sports arena, when teams came to town because the airport was so close to LMU, all of the teams practiced at LMU and the Lakers practice at LMU. So I was always around Pat Riley and all those different guys and Magic Johnson back then because I was the guy that had the keys to the gym. So then I start getting involved with like, okay, well maybe I wanna coach because I was around basketball all the time. And the one thing that I'll be honest with you, one thing that got me geared into coaching is that there was an opportunity to move up on the staff because one of the guys left and John Olive didn't promote me because he says I wasn't serious enough, uh, serious enough about coaching because it was only three assistants. One was the restricted earnings and two assistant coaches. He says I wasn't serious enough about coaching because I was trying to be in Hollywood. And that's when my Hollywood uh, life ended right there because I was like, well, that's not going to work. So I need to get more serious about coaching. And then Tom Pacora, I don't know if you remember Tom Pacora, who was a head coach at Hofstra and he was a head coach at Fordham. He left the staff because we had an earthquake in LA and like 90, I want to say like 94, we had an earthquake. He's from New York. He's like, I'm out of here. I'm done. And when he left, when he left LMU, I got promoted. And that's when my career took off two years later. I mean, it's crazy stories, but you know, as I remember that stuff back then, it was the, you know, you're, 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 you're when, when I, when somebody says they want to get into coaching um, and I tell them all the time, I say, listen, it's, it's a thankless job to a degree. 
you, you have to love kids. You have to love the process because there's so much about it not to like. And you have to understand loyalty, working for coaches, and you got to be mobile until you get to a point where you're at a place where you really want to be. You got to be able to move. And when you got a family, then it makes it hard like yourself. Like you just can't pick up and leave. You know, you got to talk to your wife and your kids are in school. Like there are a lot of guys out there that, that, that don't get opportunities because of, they have family lives. And, and it's not just them making a singular decision. So I was blessed that I wasn't married any of those times and I can move around and advance my career. But there are so many guys that don't get that opportunity. And I was blessed. I like to tell this story. Um, um, when I, Jan Van Bredekoff, who I consider one of the best basketball minds to ever walk this earth, um, was Butch Van Bredekoff's son, who was a Hofstra legend who actually coached Wilt Chamberlain for the Lakers. He's a guy famous for not subbing Wilt back into the game. But uh, we, were, we were at Pepperdine and we had great years and we we're at Vandy as well. And I remember when I was first getting my first opportunity to get my first break, because I'd been at the lower, not, you know, the, the low, I don't say low level, but at LMU. And now I'm like, okay, here's my chance to get an SEC job. I go on my interview. I'm like, I'm so nervous. And, you know, back then we would print all these books up, Dan, so you can go to your interview and show you everything you do, right? So what, you, what you've done at LMU and what you're going to do at Vanderbilt. So I get to Vanderbilt. Uh, unbeknownst to me, he had basically already in his mind decided he was going to hire me over the phone when I called him the first time, right? And so make a long story short, we go through the whole interview. I'm in Nashville. It's over with. We're laughing and joking. He says, you got the job. I said, what? I got the job. Oh, man, I'm so happy. I'm going to be in the SEC, blah, 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 blah. He said, I just got one thing to tell you, though. I said, what's that? He said, man, you did a great job in your presentation, but there's only one thing you did wrong. I said, what's that? He said, on every last one of those books, you misspelled the word Vanderbilt. <laughs> what? So I spelled Vanderbilt. So I had my, my little uh, executive assistant helping me. And so in the fervor of trying to do everything, Dan, yeah. I spelled Vanderbilt B-U-I-L-T. <laughs> True story. <laughs> on like 10 books. Every time I put Vanderbilt, I misspelled the word. How crazy is that? That's, that is another good story. I'm, I'm, Glad to hear that spelling didn't affect uh, a job opportunity for you there. Ain't that crazy? Before, but before I talk a little bit about differences of, of coaching in different leagues, I got to go back to this being the guy with the key at LMU. Yes. What What is the most odd request that you would have ever had from an NBA guy um, or, or a team back then that was going to run practice or a guy wants a workout or, or an open gym run? Because I mean, they can be demanding. Bro, you have no idea. Like, I can't remember. Like, I used to have to literally, and Magic don't, and, they, and if you know you played in the league, they call Magic Buck. And uh, like, literally, you don't, like, I had the key, Dan, but I didn't have the key, if you know what I'm saying, right? Yeah. So the minute Irving walks in, like, I'm like, I'm working for them. I'm like, it's not, I don't have the key anymore. So I used to have these runs where three courts were going at the same time. So I remember, and I'm not going to say his name because I don't want to embarrass him. But I used to work out the celebrities. So the celebrities, they would all have these basketball movies, movies they want to audition for, and they would pay me to train them, right? So a couple of guys, one guy, I won't say his name, uh, famous guy, came in one day and wanted to play, and Magic wouldn't let him play. <laughs> so, so I had to go. So imagine me sitting there going like, okay how are you going to go ask Magic Johnson to let this guy play when Magic says he can't play, right? <laughs> so I remember just going to say, uh, 
Mr. Irvin, <laughs> in order for me to keep this thing open, I got, I don't need any flack. Can you find a way to work this guy in? I will never forget that. that I, that's the one story I remember all my life is trying to get these guys to, you know, let the celebrities play and, they, and the, all the celebrities wanted to play with them and they would never want those guys to play. I don't know if you remember Derek Strong, Lloyd Vaught. I mean, oh, yeah. Sadell Three, like all these guys. Uh, I mean, all those guys were my buddies, man, and because they needed somewhere to work out. And it's the funny thing is, Dan, it's not like it is now where you have all these gyms and, you know, the Clippers has their workout facility right there uh, uh, in, in, the, in the marina. Like it just didn't exist back then in the 90s. And it would, you would see who's who walk into that gym and you'd be like, oh, my God, you know. And the sad thing I'll say is the one sad thing about it is as I was a huge, still am a huge Laker fan. And I hear, imagine a kid, Magic Johnson is his hero. Now he was on the downside of his career, but he was still playing. And the year that I'm getting ready to go out to LA, that's the, the same time that spring Magic announced he wasn't coming back to the NBA. He had, he had the HIV virus. So I thought I was going to see Magic. So he Magic didn't play when I came out there. He had retired right when I came out. So... Uh, it was, uh, again, you know, it was a great time. I, I remember one time, you know, trying to guard Mark Jackson. I mean, like, I just remember those things. Mark was playing with the Clippers. Yeah. You know, and, and you just, it's just great times back then. But again, you know, it's, it's just not like that anymore. You can't get next to those guys anymore. Like, there's there's such superstars now. Like, you'd be lucky, uh, you know, everything's closed this, closed that. And uh, you just can't have that same experience, but it was a great experience for me. And there's a lot, and a lot of it shaped the way I look at the game and the way I look at players. I'm, a, I'm, I'm huge. And I think you are too. I'm huge in analytics. I look at the game completely different than a guy of my age, because they, because those guys, I would say not, not our age, because you're a little bit younger than me, that they're still into, well, I just got a great feel and I'm so anti-field, not that I don't know what a good player looks like. I mean, obviously we all know the obvious, but I'm so numbers driven that it, it really controls the way I look at the game and actually the way I call the game as an announcer. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, I, those are some good stories. It brings back some memories for me of, you know, being in the Portland area and going playing uh, in the Portland Pro-Am Summer League against guys like Terrell Brandon and, and David yeah. Stoudemire when I was, just finishing up high school and getting the chance to be around pros for the first time or going to Seattle and working out with guys. Um, it, it makes me remember looking out on the sidelines and there would be that guy that might be a businessman with some more money in his pocket than anybody else, but you couldn't get in the gym or he couldn't get in the game because he didn't yeah. belong on the court. Um, that That is great. Now wanted to ask you real quick before I let you get going is you've, you've, you've been all across the country in a number of roles, assistant coach roles, associate head coach roles, um, <coughs> excuse me, interim head coach roles. You've been in the, the WCC, the big East, the big 12. When you go, when you look big picture now as an analyst, is it truly a different style of basketball in different parts of the country? A hundred percent, hundred percent, hundred percent. East coast, uh, you know, if you go watch kids play at the park, right. Or if you go watch pickup games or you go watch a, a practice in a, a big East practice 
and you go watch a, a UCLA practice. And again, it's, it's all about styles and personalities. I mean, a Mick Cronin is making UCLA a tougher team, right? And, and I've never seen um, you know, uh, Gonzaga practice, you know, Coach Few practice. Uh, but I have seen, you know, West Coast teams, because, you know, we get a chance to, you know, obviously pre-pandemic, we get a chance to go see their practices and stuff. And I'm telling you, between the West Coast, the South, and the East, there's a different style of basketball. And I remember this, and I remember when I recruited for Jay Wright, and he was like, I'm just not, I, I just love Eastern players better because I think they're tougher. And I'm telling you, and I don't mean to make this, this is going to sound crazy what I'm saying. I live in New York. They, they live a tougher lifestyle than the people in the Southwest. Not, you know, it's just different. You know, it's more people, it's compact. Uh, they're, they're more individual. They learn, they learn how to, you know, ride mass transit. It's just, they have to deal with the cold. It's just different, you know? Uh, and, and it's more people for small amount of space. So they have to be more hustlers than where I'm from in Texas. Not that we don't have tough areas. And, and everybody that plays basketball, it's not from a tough area. I don't know if people, basketball is, coming, is becoming very more suburban than people think. Um, but the style of play more open, um, and you may be able to test to that, it's just up and down a little bit more where the East Coast is a little bit more rugged. The coaches coach differently. Uh, some coaches, I believe on the East Coast, they coach every pass or the, or the West Coast. They're the guys other than a Jay Wright that'd be more, that would be more open to guys catching and shooting threes in transition off no passes. Like, I think that's a West Coast thing. You know, it's similar to in football when they say the West Coast offense. I believe that, you know, lends itself to basketball as well. So uh, the South is maybe a mixture between the two. More athletes. I think there's more athletes in the South than the Big 12 and the SEC. The SEC is always much maligned as a league is, is not as good as the Power Fives or Power Sixes, shall I say, in basketball. But um, it's definitely, and I think teaching-wise, it's just a little bit different. You know, I would say the South is a hybrid between the two. I think they're better athletes in the South. I think there's more skilled players on the, on the West Coast, right? And I just think they're more rugged players and tougher players on the East Coast. And I don't want people to shoot me for saying that. And then the Midwest, I would say, is a, is a hybrid of all of them because they're very good players in the Midwest. But, Dan, would you say that the Midwest is not what it used to be? You know, the Indianas and all those schools, they're just, you know, Purdue's a good, you know, they had some good runs, but I don't know if the Midwest, because Chicago hasn't been as great as it used to be. Illinois just got back to the tournament. I don't know if the Midwest has been what it used to be, you know? Well, I think with the Big Ten, you know, as I mean, a Big West Ten, Coast guy, I look yeah. at the style of, of physical slowdown. And one of the reasons I think Illinois stood out this year is because they kept the, a lot of the really good inner city Chicago kids there. Ayo Dasunmo, um, you know, is a great example of that. And they played a little different style than the most of the big 10. Um, yeah. <coughs> excuse me. Yeah. yeah. Oh, they have some you know, people, and, and Kofi Colburn, big fella, you know, from New York. So, and yeah, and, uh, yeah Corbello and the kid, too, I forget the lefty they had. Uh, he's from Chicago as well. And they, I mean, I don't know if he's from Chicago, but I know he's a, he's from that, from Illinois. They had a really good team. And Brad was a great, you know, Brad's a great coach. Um, and, and it worked, you know what I mean? But they hadn't been to the tournament in like, what, 10, 12 years. It's been a while, you know? And Ohio State, you know, the way they, you know, bowed out of the tournament, like, you know, good, good but not great, you know what I mean? What you expect from the Big Ten. And my thing is, and I was giving someone a hard time the other day, I'm like, oh, you can say what you want, but, you know, Michigan was really the class. Of, they were, and Michigan State's down. Think about it. 
and maybe this just is an odd year because of the pandemic. I'm not pounding on the Big Ten. I'm just saying, like, I just, I hate to get, you know, people to get mad at me. I think it was overhyped. I'm sorry. We only have one measurement, the tournament. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Tournament is a measurement, and they didn't pass the test. So maybe it was overhyped. Well, Chris, I appreciate the insight, the breakdown, the stories. Uh, <laughs> this was great to reconnect. We're going to have to do it again sometime because – um, uh, didn't, didn't get into everything I wanted to. I wanted to hear about your baseball, uh, oh. aspirations. I wanted to hear a little bit more about your insight as, uh, in advice for young coaches coming up in the game. So I appreciate you joining. We will have to do this again at some point this summer. And who knows, maybe at that point, you're going to be coaching your own AAU team this year. And you've got some new, uh, memories and new stories, uh, and new breakdowns of that summer scene. Hey, as long as you don't tease me about not scoring nine more points, man, we're going to be okay. Deal. Well, for Mr. 991, <laughs> this has been the ISO with Dan Dickow and SB Live Sports. All right, brother. I'll talk to you. The ISO with Dan Dickow and SB Live Sports, brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.